Welcome to the TurfNet Renovation Report, sponsored by Golf Preservations, the Greens Drainage Specialist. I'm Anthony Piappi, your host, and joining you today is Jeff Mingay. We're going international for the first time. Jeff is based in Toronto, Canada. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Jeff, first question out of the box is, besides you, how many other Canadian golf course architects are there? Um, good question. Uh, Rod Whitman, my mentor who I worked with for 10 years before going out on my own, uh, Rod's still active, doing some cool stuff. Um, Ian Andrew, another good friend of mine, uh, doing some real good renovation work, a uh, lot in the States as well. Um, some good young guys coming up too. Um, Keith Cutton, who, uh, he's done a lot of work with Rod and I over the years, um, and then for both of us independently, um, you know, those are the first three that, that, that jumped to mind. I, I'm fortunate right now. I'm busy and, um, I'm, I'm not as in tune to what's going on outside <laughs> my own uh, world as I used to be, to be honest with you, Right. which I think is uh, good and bad, but there's also some good in it too. You know, I keep the noise off to the side sometimes. That nothing wrong with that. So, so tell me, tell me about the, uh, the state of, Golf course renovation, restoration work in Canada, um, and the golf business—you know—the go- the golf construction business in general compared to the United States. Well, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think it's it's probably very similar to between the United States and Canada in general. Where I think I think our golf clubs, for the most part, other than sort of the upper tier ones, I guess you'd call them. You know, we we sort of approach things more modestly. You know, in a lot of ways, I wish we didn't do that. But instead of going, you know, here's three, four, five million dollars, let's go out and renovate 18 holes all at once. We tend to do things more in phases. You know, we 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 all, a lot of my renovation projects up here are like that, where we're doing, you know, three or four holes in the fall, three or four holes in the spring, then we shut it down for the golf season, and uh, you know, attack it again in the next fall. And it usually takes years, you know, instead of months to to do a lot of these projects, which which is fine with me. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, these golf courses have evolved over decades and sometimes over a century. And, uh, you know, you can't put them all back together, you know, in the snap of a finger. And the way I work, too, you know, I still do a lot of my own shaping. So I think it's nice. I think the clubs appreciate that I can bring some economy and efficiency by just going in, renting an excavator, and in many cases, just working with the superintendent and the in-house maintenance staff, um, you know, to carry out the work. So, um, you know, again, I think we do it, we kind of tiptoe around it rather than run into it a lot of times. Right. You think part of that is the is because in a good section of Canada, the golf season is short, and to shut a club down, you know what I mean? Here, yeah. if you go in in the fall, you can open in the spring, and you can have six months, even in New England, to play, or, you know, Minnesota, to play golf. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. People are very, very protective of the, uh, you know, May through even October. Um, you know, what I'm doing, I just started a project in Ottawa, actually, uh, on the Quebec side of the Ottawa River, actually, in Gatineau, Quebec. And uh, it's an old club. We were supposed to start, you know, September 10th, I think it was, to, to do a fall phase. And, and the club <laughs> pushed us down the road to mid-October. We just started a couple weeks ago, or last week, actually, um, for that very reason. You know, they had enough... Uh, enough events scheduled for September um, 
and people still wanted to play golf where the weather was good that uh, <laughs> they kicked us down the road and uh, <laughs> a pretty late start. So we'll see. Right. I'm not sure we're going to hit the uh, intended scope of work here this year, but uh, that's the way things go. So, so tell me about some other projects you're working on at this time. I'm really fortunate. I'm I'm busy on a lot of the types of projects that I just described. You know, we're working on pieces of a golf course here right. and there. And first first project I ever had on my own, going back to 2009, was out at the Victoria Golf Club in British Columbia. Uh, and Victoria is involved with the Pacific Northwest Golf Association, so okay. a lot of Seattle area clubs ended up seeing my work in Victoria. So now I'm, I've got five or six projects in Seattle on the go, all at different phases. You know. Uh, some just in the preliminary planning. Others were halfway done renovating the golf course. Other ones were just starting. So I'm frequently out in Seattle. Um, working in Minnesota, really neat project at um, Town and Country Club. Uh, working with the legend Bill Larson, superintendent right. there. Right. Trying to trying to put back some old world charm at Town and Country. It's going real good. Um, and um, Ottawa, I just mentioned. Um, Mostly, you know, most of the historic stuff, like whether or not I intended to or not. I mean, I've always been, those are the jobs I tend to land. I kind of come at the, the work I do from a historical perspective. You know, I really enjoy researching the old architects, the old architects' intent, um, the evolution of a golf course. You know, I've always enjoyed that, taking a look at what it was, how it's evolved, why it's changed which changes have been positive, which have been negative, you know, and all those, answering all those questions and doing all that research usually ends with a really logical master plan. Right. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that type of work, cutting fields uh, near Toronto here, which is a cool old Stanley Thompson course that he actually owned for a period of time. Oh, no kidding. That's interesting. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, he bought it. Well, he originally laid it out with Chick Evans, if you can believe it, out of Chicago. Wow. wow. was here in... Long story, but he came to Toronto with a Chicago businessman that he knew, and he was involved with the layout of the golf course. I'm not even sure he ever worked in golf architecture other than this particular club. Right. And uh, one, one of the interesting things about it is you can see, I can anyways, a lot of Chicago golf club type influence. Um, you know, very, it's, very, uh, it's a very different golf course within Thompson's portfolio. There's some big squarish fill pads, you know, and some kind of Chicago trench looking bunkers combined with some Thompson stuff it's uh, no kidding it's really yeah it's really neat so I mean we just finished a master plan that was just approved by committee that um, is really going to try to restore that distinctiveness right um, with the Evans influence so uh, yeah those are those are some of the highlights right now what I'm working on um, but yeah, it's really nice to be busy I feel like there's a, an interesting uh, swell of uh, work and, and interest in, in, in doing work uh, you know, with a lot of clubs. Right. Tell me again the name of the club that Chick Evans and Stanley Thompson were involved with. What was the name of that? It's it's called Cutten Fields. C U T T E N Fields. Definitely gonna have to check that one out. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. Because um, Chick Evans was a big, you know, a Chicago guy and a big fan of Chicago Golf Club and all that, and Stanley Thompson right. has his distinctive style. So that's interesting that you're that they kind of meld yeah. in this one golf course. It, it is interesting because, as you're saying, I mean the, the styles of those two, you know, Thompson compared to Chicago Golf Clubs, night and day. <laughs> right. But, uh, but it, it's a it's a it's an interesting melding. It works. You know, we just restored, for example, some of those big fill pads I just mentioned. You know, these big square greens that have 
shrunk down to little ovals. Um, we just put one back on a part of three third hole. I mean, it re- really looks like Chicago. It's cool. Two big back shoulders on it and a, and a bank falling off the back. And I've never seen Thompson build anything like that. So it was definitely part of Evans's influence is my suspicion. That's, that's really interesting. Have you been to Chicago golf club? I have. Yeah. I was there last summer. I'm actually working on another master plan for Briarwood country club, which is a, uh, Allison design up in uh, up on the North Shore near Camar- or, sorry Camargo near uh, Shore Acres and yep yep um, old elements places so yeah right. I, t- I took the liberty at knowing I was working on cutting to go down to Chicago just to you know just to see again what uh, what those influence of his were and have you been out to Shore Acres I have <laughs> yeah I made a point to get out there last summer too and what an amazing place isn't I mean, it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's up on my list of you know if you could play anywhere if you had to play one place the rest of your life it certainly would be in the <laughs> running for me. <laughs> I just right. love it. Those yeah, rooms are just I know beautiful. I wrote the club history for them. It came out in 2017, oh, right. and uh, Rainer's routing the way he utilizes those ravines is, and you realize that's early in his career. That's 1916. Looking back, I yep. think that really sends a clarion call of what kind of architect he was going to be because that routing is amazing. I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, like you mentioned, um, we were talking about Quahog Field Club earlier, probably off the <laughs> off the tape yeah. here. But, you know, no, the, the flattish areas on the on that golf course at Shore Acres are some of the coolest things I've ever seen. Right. You know, you know the first hole, the, the road hole green at 10, you know the the double fairway nine and eighteen. I yeah, mean, those yeah. are pretty flat spots, and they're cool holes. And then yeah. you get in the ravines. I mean, it's it's so dramatic. It's it's great. I absolutely agree with you. So so Jeff, not, t- not to mention the drive in the drive in. <laughs> no, the drive is wonderful. You know. The drive is absolutely wonderful. And then you're there. And the logo. <laughs> yep, and everything about you put it. Put everything together. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, just Shore Acres. That's it. No country club. No golf club. No field club, no polo club, just shore acres. Well, I thought that I always think that's one of the cool things about cutting fields too. You know, there's no golf right. club or club or anything. It's just cutting fields, which is right. Cool. That's awesome. I like I like when I like when clubs do that. So, Jeff, tell me about uh, the hoops you have to jump through to be a Canadian citizen working in the United States. Um, it, it's actually fairly simple. Um, you know, obtaining a visa. Uh, in my case, you know, there's two ways to do it. You you either prove that you've got an educational background that applies to the work that's being done or you um, show you know that you've combi- compiled a body of work that uh, uh, you know makes you an accomplished person in your field and that uh, clients in the United States people in the United States would like you to work for them so it's just a matter of you know consulting a lawyer filling out the right paperwork and obtaining the right documents it's it's fairly simple I guess when you're a relatively stand-up individual <laughs> so, so no convictions that you have to worry about to, uh, <laughs> no, to you, no not okay i probably walked that line a few times in my life but nothing nothing ever happened <laughs> it's, it's like that line from stripes right convicted never convicted right? <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> um and so so let's just say today you get hired by a club in in north dakota how long does the process take uh, well, usually the way I do it is, um, you know, I work off 60 day inter- intervals, for example, if we're going to do a, like a long range improvement plan, you know, once they, 
engage me to to go ahead with a plan. You know, I usually spend uh, 60 days visiting the club, doing my research, playing some golf there, talking to the superintendent, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll deliver a preliminary draft of the plan. And this is really my favorite part of the process, actually. You know, I usually throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at the club. And I always warn them about that. You know, I'll come to them with some pretty big ideas that I already know probably will never be implemented. But once that preliminary draft gets in their hands, we, you know, we'll meet, we'll walk the golf course, talk through everything I've, I've suggested and talk about why I've suggested it. And then through that review process, you know, which usually takes place over another 30 or 60 days, you know, we whittle it down to something that the committee, the board, the management, myself all agree is practical in that particular club's case. And then um, that produces a, you know, a, a working document. So timing obviously is, is, is key too. But I mean, I think within, you know, four months, five months, usually, uh, including that review process, we can get down to something that's, that makes, makes sense and then start costing it and start figuring out how it's going to be implemented and all those sorts of things. And then after that, as you know, I mean, the membership education is really important. So it's probably a full year process by the time you get everything done on the plan and, you know, spread the word amongst the members and do your information sessions and all of those sorts of things. Calendar year is probably a good target, I would guess, in my experience. And then, and then, how do you how do you deal with then the the work visa? When do you when do you start applying for it, and how long does that take? You know, if you're coming over to visit a club once you get hired, how does that happen? Well, I'm fortunate actually. To uh, my my visa actually applies to any and all projects that I'm working on, and it's uh, it's three year renewable. So I have a visa that allows me to come into the States and do what I need to do in, in that three-year period before I have to apply for a renewal. There are other visas. I used to use a visa where you used to have to get one per project, which is, which is more time-consuming and sort of difficult, right? You know, you, right now, for example, I mean, I've got 10, I don't know, some, at least 10 projects going on in the States. I'd have to have 10 different visas in my, in my passport. So, um, I was fortunate to run into another lawyer in the, in the United States who helped me out and secured a, a, another visa that allows me to work on anything I need to with just one document instead. So, Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. All right, so let's do this. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor. Uh, we'll have a word from them, and we'll be right back. From green strainage to sod work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind to know the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Visit GolfPreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to talk to us directly about your next project. Okay, we're back on the TurfNet Renovation Report and my guest is Canadian golf course architect Jeff Mingay. Jeff, I want to ask you about this. When when you think of Can- all-time great Canadian classic era architects, I think most fans of golf course architecture would know Stanley Thompson. Yep. But you're also a fan of A.V. McCann. Yes. For, tell me, tell for people who don't know him, let's talk a little bit about what he did. He also wrote, didn't he, about about architecture? Yeah, he was he was a prolific guy. I mean, he he was an administrator with the with the Pacific Northwest Golf Association. He wrote on every aspect 
published author on every aspect of the game, playing, architecture, rules. Um, and he really pioneered. He was a champion golfer, too. He won the PNGA championship a bunch. And, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he really pioneered golf architecture in the Pacific Northwest, um, starting with Royal Colwood. In, in his adopted home of Victoria, British Columbia. He was an immigrant from Ireland, actually. Yeah, and his, and his dad was his dad was quite the, was a noted physician, right? He yeah. He was knighted. He was knighted, right. Uh, he actually uh, revolutionized, I guess would be the word, um, uh, how do you say it, Obst- obstetrics, right? With women, yeah. Yeah. women in Dublin back in the 1880s, no one would go to the hospital to have children because... Um, the sterilization was really poor and, and many women would go into the hospital to give birth and end up dying. And, uh, A.V. McCann senior, uh, uh, well, yeah, he was a, he was a surgeon who revolutionized sterilization and things like that and just completely changed, um, how ho- hospitals operated in Ireland. And I think it also spread obviously to Scotland and England and then continental Europe. So yeah, he was very, he was an esteemed guy. And how did his son end up being a, a golf course architect in Canada? Well, you know, it's funny. It's kind of an interesting story, and a lot of it is speculation. But he um, he was a great golfer uh, growing up in, in Ireland. And he, he played at British amateurs and things like that. And he ran in circles with a lot of the big-name guys, you know, the John Lowe's and the Boris Hutchinson's, and the, you know, the Hugh Allison's. And I think he was at all these tournaments with them when, back then. So I think he was in the in the mix with all these guys who were revolutionizing or you know starting to do what we now know as golf course architecture and he was actually a lawyer but he went to trinity college in dublin um studied law and uh and uh, somehow or another ended up immigrating to victoria with his uh, wife and two young kids at the time this was about 1910 but as I've studied his life more and, and thought about thought about it, it really seems to me, honestly, and I again, this is only speculation, I think he had such an interest in golf course architecture that he looked at the Pacific Northwest as an untapped opportunity. You know, because in the East, you know, Donald Ross had already showed up and things were happening in Chicago and Philadelphia and New York. And there were a lot of, British expats coming to Victoria and I honestly think he saw an opportunity to come there and show people that he knew golf and uh, was able to do this you know as the cities of Seattle and Victoria and Vancouver and Portland were really growing and that's exactly what happened he ended up laying out all kinds of pioneering golf courses in those in those cities right and and in the midst of all this he uh he volunteers for the Canadian Army for World War One and yes. gets injured and ends up losing part of his left leg. Yeah, he was at, uh, and it's funny. He he was practicing law, and I think he was in his thirties, so he wasn't necessarily obligated to go to war. But uh, he he did volunteer, and he ended up at Vimy Ridge, which is a you know one of the biggest battles in, uh, during the First World War. Ironically, Stanley Thompson was there too. You know, two wow. of the pioneering architects in Canadian history were both at Vimy Ridge. Right. But yeah, uh, a shell, uh, McCann was either near or near us where a shell landed, and he had massive injuries to, I think it was the left leg, and ended up having to have it amputated from the knee down. So, you know, by 1919, when he was laying out his second 18 hole course at uh, Inglewood in Seattle, which ironically I'll be there tomorrow. Um, 
he uh, yeah he was working off of a of a wooden leg. Yeah, and still playing amazing. golf. Yeah, and still playing golf. Is that right? That's amazing. Yeah, the story is he kept a single digit handicap even even with uh, with his wooden leg. Yeah. <laughs> so he was quite the player, obviously. Uh, yeah, he must have been, eh? Yeah. And are, are there some designs that it, for fans of architecture that don't know much about him, and I, I admit that I'm one of them, what courses should we look to that you would think is, is McCann's best work? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, it's, it's actually quite sad how, how, how much has been lost in terms of his original designs, um, in terms of width, bunker style, green sizes. I mean, I've never seen golf courses evolve so far away from what they were originally. Um, but Furcrest in Tacoma, Washington is, is, is really a great golf course and it's, um, it's pretty much unchanged. I mean, I've I've restored some bunkers and remodeled some bunkers there in recent years, but uh, McCann's original routing over a really great property, really good property, sandy, humpity bumpy, just perfect elevation change. Um, it's a really good golf course. Uh, it's just down the street from Chambers Bay, actually. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, like a stone's throw. Uh, I'd put Furcrest up there for sure. Um, Inglewood, like I said, around on tomorrow, we've actually restored eight holes now. And we're, well, maybe it will be eight when we're done this phase this fall. We're working on three this fall and a couple more in the spring. Um, we're sorting that out pretty good. You know, they've done some really good tree work. And we've restored some, some bunkers and some width and things like that. It's on a really dramatic property, too, just just north of Seattle, um, uh, up in Kenmore, Washington. Uh, overlooking the north tip of Lake Washington, um, those, those two really jump to mind um, as probably the best. If I was going to tell people to go look at something, third would probably right. Broadmoor in Seattle, which is almost right downtown Seattle, um, and of course Victoria. But Victoria is a little bit of a of a modification. You know, he there was a golf course there from 1893 to 1925 when McCann actually. Put, put the course together the way we see it and the way we play it today. Um, but right. Victoria is spectacular. You know, to play golf right on the ocean there on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, it's, it's a pretty cool place too. Jeff, are you surprised that when you look back to the golden era of architecture that there's only two Canadians that really made an impression, uh, McCann and then Stanley Thompson, that there were no other Canadian architects who kind of carved out, carved out a niche in history? Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of building golf courses that compare to the best in the United States, um, they were the only two. The two that I'm starting to realize, I'm working on a couple of courses right now here that were originally designed by George Cumming and um, Nickel Thompson, who's actually Stanley's older brother. Um, They actually really pioneered golf architecture, particularly in the province of Ontario. And uh, they did some really, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not comparable to Pine Valley, but they did some really, really cool pioneering work, you know, in the pre-1920 era and, uh, and really mentored and, and kind of shepherded Thompson, Stanley Thompson into the, into the business. Um, and they're getting a lot more recognition these days, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I think one of the reasons too is when you look at the population of our country going back into the, into the 20s and, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a, a significant population of any 
of any sort, especially compared right. to the States. So I guess two is a comparable number <laughs> relative to <laughs> comparing the populations. Just like I can only and, name three at the beginning now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and ironically, one of if one of the oldest golf clubs in in North America is in Montreal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And well, yeah, you look at a lot. I mean, Mont- Royal Montreal goes back into the 1870s, maybe. Victoria's right, right. 1893. Brantford right. near near Toronto here's 1878, I think. Toronto right. Golf Club is 1880. Some yeah, so we we do have some history. We just didn't really get into the the great architecture, you know, really until Thompson started grabbing all those great properties that he did during the 20s. And what was his or who was his major influence? You know, that is a really really good question. I um I'm not sure anyone has really answered that. I mean, one of the one of the coolest pieces of his, history in terms of Canadian architecture, is that George Cumming, who I just mentioned, was the head pro yeah. at the Toronto Golf Club for 50 years. Nickel Thompson, Stanley's older brother, was the head pro at Hamilton Golf and Country Club for 50 years. What the correlation there is, is that uh, a guy named Harry Colt <laughs> laid out both yeah. Toronto and Hamilton. And wow. that's how... That's how coming and the older Thompson started. I think clubs started to look at Toronto and Hamilton, and they said, "Holy cow! You know, we need that." But obviously, Colt wasn't available. So, right, coming and Thompson, who had helped Colt, you know, find those properties and probably oversaw the construction, the grow in, and things like that, they stepped up and said, "Yeah, we, you know, we have this experience building these great courses." So they subsequently became golf course architects. Um, you know, so thinking about Thompson's influence, I think he certainly knew a lot and saw a lot as a young man as as Colts Toronto and Colts Hamilton courses were being built. Um, right. You know, one thing Thompson, one thing that really jumps out is Thompson courses always have fantastic par threes, like almost without exception. And Colt always talked about you know routing golf courses by first finding the most exciting par three holes and then lacing those together. So I, I would certainly say that Colt was a major influence of Tom, on Thompson, you know, uh, through his older brother and through George Cumming. Interesting. And who of the who of the well known Golden Age architects, American Golden Age architects, worked in Canada? Well, actually, you know, I was just thinking about this. Um, Hugh Allison came up here to Toronto in the early twties to build what was the original York Downs course. It doesn't exist anymore. But okay. um, you talk about influences on Stanley Thompson. It's well documented that uh, the firm of Thompson, Cumming, and Thompson, which is Nickel Thompson, George Cumming, and Stanley Thompson, they actually built the original York Downs for Hugh Allison. Oh, no so, kidding. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's actually Earl Bales Park now here in downtown Toronto, the old the oh, original New York Downs. You can still, still see golf course features. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, Hugh Allison was here. Willie Park did some really early pioneering work here. Um, those are in Colt, obviously. Colt, Allison, Park. Um, when was Park oh, well, Like well, what years? Willie Park was early. Like, you know, in and around 1920, he was here yeah. doing Ottawa Hunt Club and uh, Calgary Golf and Country Club. I think a few others in and around Montreal. 
Um, right to see it, yeah. And at the same time, he's in. He comes to he comes to Connecticut. You know, he's got um, Shuttle Meadow and uh, one of his early courses here, and then he's out in Minnesota doing work there. It's really interesting where he was tied into Carter Seed Company, from what I understand. And it's really you know Shuttle Meadow is uh, I think an overlooked course out here. When you get out and see what what Park did in I think it's, uh, 1916, it's just it's cool stuff. His greens are fantastic. And yeah. his use of the land his use of the land is fantastic. Yeah, funny. I was I was in Ottawa this week or Monday and Tuesday yesterday and uh I got somebody gave me the uh club history book for the Ottawa Hunt Club which is which has changed the course has changed a lot. And there are some incredible photos of Park's original course there too. Just really dramatic bunkering and as you just said some really really cool greens. Um, it was amazing the quality of work. I mean, it's like Donald Ross, you know, getting around as much as they did at that yes. time, yeah. and still producing the quality of work is amazing. You know, I mean, I'm running around pretty hectic right now too, and I hope I could, you know, produce the quality that, or I hope I am producing the quality that those guys did in a really extraordinary time. Right. I was out last week. I was out at um, Country Club of New Bedford in Massachusetts, which is long thought to be a Donald Ross course. And one of their members has all but proved it's a Willie Park. And if you were on the golf course, I mean, I think there's some. I think there's a contingent in the club because they're from Massachusetts, in Massachusetts that wants to be Donald Ross. But if you walk the golf course, you don't see any Ross. It's all Willie Park, and they have board minutes from him. And he comes in and they hire him. Uh, they hire Park. He he goes out on the site and and has a plan in their hands five days later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. It really is. And I've heard stories like that too, you know, even Thompson or Ross or, yeah, that's, that's great stuff. Really great stuff. And it's quality. I don't, I don't want to, you know, it's a, it's on a tight piece of land. It's not heavily bunkered in the fairway, but there's all this strategy. There's a great use of land. There's an amazing short par three uphill volcano hole par three. That's completely constructed, completely man-made. But you're like, man, he did that in five days. You know, it's just after having yeah. never been on the site. Yeah, and you know, think about something being constructed like that. You know, we talk so much about minimalism and all this stuff these days. And, you know, the audacity that they had sometimes to build the stuff that they did in the 1920s uh, is really cool. I mean, we restored, you've probably seen pictures of it, but we restored uh, Verna McCann's volcano hole at um, Furcrest. And, you know, big, big 20 foot deep bunkers benched into this hillside or the, the, you know, the greens up on top of the hill. And we were in there building it with bulldozers or I should say restoring it with bulldozers and excavators. And the contractor I work with out there, Kip Calbrenner, um, you know, we, were, we kept talking about, Holy cow, you know, how did they build this stuff in 1923? Right. We're, right. We're, we're having a challenge with all this modern equipment. It's just amazing that the vision, first of all, and then yep. the ability to, to, to implement it, carry out that work. is just awesome. Yeah. And I agree with you. And the same thing with this, you know, this is, a, I think we, the day we played, it was 122 yards, you know, uphill into this crosswind playing 140 to a 3000 square foot green with these bunkers benched into it. And the severity of the slope is there's no way there's horses with drag plates going up these slopes. You right. Know, this is men piling up and, and leveling off and compacting this earth. It's, 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 it's audacious. Like you said. Yeah. And then the other thing too is, you know, aside from the construction work, you think about playing those holes back in the twenties. You know, you've right. got inferior clubs, inferior balls, yep. and they must have been so hard 
And nowadays, you know, we restore stuff like that, and all we get is complaints about the bunkers being too deep, my ball gets stuck right. in the grass slope, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I wish I could put these people in a time machine and have them go play it <laughs> when it was really hard. With, with, a, with Hickory Golf Clubs, I mean, what you know, the, the sand wedge isn't invented until, what, 1924? So maybe maybe the, the loft on some of the regular wedges – you know, was more than than what we have now, but they're not going in there with lob wedges. They're not going in there with fifty six degree wedges, and they're playing out of these bunkers and they're dealing with it. Right, it's amazing. You know, it was a, it reminds me of something I saw Pete Dye one time at the actually ironically at the PGA Championship at Oakland Hills. I think it was back in two thousand eight. And uh, he kind of knew who I was because I worked with Rod Whitman, and Rod used to work for Pete. And we started talking and. and he said something to me like, you know why people play golf, right? And I was standing there waiting for something prophetic to come out of his mouth. And he said, because it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we just like the challenge. And if you have the right, right. attitude, that's why you play. You know, you, I can be better next time. And you, you just revel in the tough shots, you know. And I, I think there's not enough people who revel in the, in the difficulty of it, you know. And that's what, that's what really makes the fun. If it was easy, why the hell would we play? Right, and I think that comes back to the whole concept, and I I know that you've talked about this, and I have too, about this concept of par that we're so wrapped up in the number of par, the the number that is par, and if we don't, you know, make that number, then somehow we failed or we didn't accomplish what we're doing, rather than understanding that whatever's going on that day in the hole for for you or me or whoever else is difficult, and and like you said, revel revel in the challenge. And, and don't worry about the score. Exactly. You know, the hard holes are easy when you're playing good, and the easy holes are hard when you're not playing good. I mean, when, right. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> and and I think that's, you know, from studying all of these guys, that, that they understood that, and that's why they made easy golf holes. And I'm, I'm always stunned when I see these renovation or restoration projects and People talk about making the harder. This is a great Brian Silva line. They want to make the harder holes easier and the easier holes harder. So essentially all the holes are the same. And the great golf courses have the difficult holes and they have the easy holes. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, I I even simplify it more than that sometimes. And I, you know, I've seen enough people play golf and I've played enough golf in my life that I really feel like if you just build an interesting piece of ground, that's beautiful to look at the golf really just takes care of itself at the end of the day you know right. you contour it you tilt it you dig a hole you put sand in it you you know yeah. and you that's just a really, that's a really good point off, you know yeah i agree with you if it's yeah. an interesting piece of land you're absolutely right and if you can make as we talked about with quad field club three three and a half feet of elevation change over the the, the nine holes but it's it's an interesting piece of property when you play the golf course Right, and if you shoot it, if you shoot the best score of your career, it's even better, because the yeah. next the next day you're going to go out and play terrible and shoot a score you're unhappy with. You know that's just golf. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I think for the people who want to, um, what's the word? They almost like perfect the game. They're the ones who don't enjoy golf because they oh, never absolutely. they're never going to achieve what they want. You know. Right. Exactly, and the people who think about golf as a you think that we set this stuff up uh, in some sort of scientific or manner or use a mathematical equation to put bunkers here and 
determine the, the width of the fairway and all those sorts of things. It's amazing to me that there's that many people that think about a golf course that way instead of thinking of it as a piece of art and of just a, yes. thinking of it as a landscape. They think about it as like some engineered piece of ground, and that's really not what the best courses are. Right, like there's right, like there's a mathematical equation to figure out a good par four on a three hundred and fifty, you know, three hundred and fifty yard corridor. Right. You know, I mean, it's I not, and they don't say, understand that. That would be assuming that we all play golf like robots, and right. we certainly don't do that. We don't go out and hit the same drive every day on, you know, each hole, or the same approach. And people, that's the way a lot of people analyze golf courses. And it's just, it's just bizarre. It kind of makes you crazy, doesn't it? Uh, some days it does, I'll admit. Because <laughs> they're missing the point. They're missing the creativity. They're missing the art. To, to me, they're missing the fun. You know? And they're missing the opportunities, too, sometimes on their own club properties, you know? it's Right. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, it's been really good talking to you. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Um, that is going to conclude today's episode. I've been spending some time with Jeff, Jeff Minge, a Canadian-based golf course architect who does a lot of work in the United States. Uh, thank you very much for being here, Jeff. Hey, it's always, uh, always fun talking, to Tony, and I uh, appreciate you having me. Thanks. And you've been listening to the Renovation Report on TurfNet Radio.